This morning we are taking a slight break from our normal studies in the book of Hebrews. We're going over to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus 16, which actually is one of the texts, was one of the texts used by the writer of Hebrews, and also this particular chapter. So we're going to read this morning, it's a lengthy chapter, but we'll be reading just the first 22 verses. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 to 22. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil. And put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Then he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until it 
until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel. And all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let that goat free, go free in the wilderness. The Day of Atonement, or as it is known in the Hebrew, Yom Kippur, was perhaps the single most important day of the Jewish ritual calendar. It was observed once annually, verse 34, and that was on the 10th day of the 7th month of the year, according to verse 29. And this was a particularly special day of the year for the people of Israel because, as suggested by verses 30 and 34, on this day, sacrificial atonement was made for all the people with respect to all the sins they had committed throughout the year. We read in verses 30 and 34, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. What do we learn from this passage this morning? Among the lessons we learn, one would be the enormity or gravity of sin, that sin is more serious. We learn, secondly, of the immensity of God's holiness. God is so awesome in holiness that he has to approach with great caution. We learn something of the necessity of blood sacrifice to atone for sins. And as we're going to come to see, we learn elsewhere in relation to this passage of the insufficiency of this arrangement on the Day of Atonement for taking care of sins. We'll not look, be looking at all of these points this morning. At least we'll be looking at one point, which is the enormity or gravity of sin. The enormity or gravity of sin, which of course implies the utter sinfulness of man. In a book that deals larger with the question as to how sinful human beings may approach a holy God, namely the book of Leviticus, it is not at all surprising 
that the word sin and its cognates occur as many as 110 times. 110 times we have a reference to the word sin and its cognates. In terms of synonyms, the word iniquity appears 18 times, transgression two times, guilt or trespass as it's found in the King James Version 38 times. So that all these words combined constitute a total of 165 times in which the book of Leviticus calls attention to the seriousness of man's offense against God. The book of Leviticus highlights, as I said earlier, the solemn truth that in the eyes of him who is of purer eyes than to look upon evil, as Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 1 and verse 13. Sin is exceedingly sinful, to use Paul's language in Romans chapter 7 and verse 13. In this chapter, the word sin can be found as many as 14 times between verses 11 and 34. And the basic idea Underlying this word sin is that of missing the mark, is that of falling short of God's perfect standard. That is why we read in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, where interestingly, the Greek word that Paul uses there was an archer's term, which meant failing to miss the mark. The word of God says, therefore, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. To sin against God is to fall short of his perfect standard, namely perfect, absolute righteousness. Now, let's consider the idea that's inherent in each of the various terms related to sin as they occur in the book of Leviticus. And in so doing, we'll see something of the gravity of sin which necessitates atonement if ever man is to be put right with God. The word iniquity found in verses 21 and 22 of our text, Leviticus 16, conveys the imagery of that which is bent or twisted. It connotes the idea of moral crookedness of what we would call moral perversity. When the Bible describes man's condition as his being in a state of iniquity, the idea is that before God, he is morally crooked, he is morally warped, he is morally twisted, he is morally and spiritually perverse. Second, there's a term transgression that's found in verses 16 and 21, and that word speaks of stepping over or going beyond one's assigned boundary. It is going beyond God's stipulated law. And in this regard, sin is portrayed as a brazen, daring act against the sovereignty and authority of Almighty God. Indeed, this was the very attitude that Adam and Eve displayed back in the Garden of Eden, because you remember God there in the Garden of Eden had established bounds. He said, of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of this particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And what did Adam and Eve do? They transgressed. 
They stepped across their assigned boundary. They stepped outside God's stipulated word. And so they transgressed against God. In fact, Paul uses that language in Romans chapter 5. He talks about one man's transgression. Sin in the eyes of God is to brazenly step over one's assigned boundary. Third, in the book of Leviticus, sin is presented as guilt. Guilt. And suggested by the Hebrew word, asham, is the notion of consequent punishment. The word conveys the idea, inbuilt in the word is the idea of consequent punishment. Sin, we are saying here, the word of God is suggesting, puts Man in a condition of guilt before God, an account of which he stands under the sentence of divine condemnation. And then a fourth term that's found in the book of Leviticus relating to man's sin, relating to man's offense against God, is uncleanness. Uncleanness. As many as three times, that is in verses 16 and 19, God spoke of the need for Aaron's priestly ministry on the Day of Atonement because of what? The uncleannesses of the people. Sin, according to the word of God, is a condition of spiritual and moral defilement before a holy and righteous God. And like leprosy, sin is portrayed in Scripture as a foul, loathsome disease which causes the face of God to be turned away. Sin is likened to leprosy, and that is why sin is portrayed, sin is referred to as an abomination to God. That is to say, that which he detests, that which he hates passionately. And until men and women outside of Christ believe on Christ and turn to him for their salvation, they are ever under the condemnation and wrath of God, the Bible teaches. My friends, in the eyes of a holy God, sin is most serious. So that as one of the Wesley brothers puts it, quote, he says this, Indeed, there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. In general, what to human seems a small offense to him who knows the heart may appear a heinous crime, end quote. And so it is, beloved, we never see sin for what it is. We never see sin for what it is until we see sin as God sees it, until we see it from God's perspective, until we see it as offense against him. Indeed, the daily slaughter of countless animals in ancient Israel was a sobering reminder that sin is no light matter. Daily, we are told, the writer of the Hebrews puts it, he says, the, the priest would stand daily ministering, offering sacrifices. And that it, in the eyes of God, sin is more serious, therefore necessitates atonement. That's why we have chapter 16 which speaks to us of what occurred on the Day of Atonement. Now let's look at some of the procedures 
that were to be followed on the Day of Atonement. Beginning in verses 1 and 2, God warned Aaron through Moses about entering his presence without due authorization. We read, here's God's word to Moses concerning Aaron. The warning is given, given, given to Aaron. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is in the ark. You remember the account of Nadab and Abihu, the, the sons of Aaron, how that they offered strange fire before the Lord, worship that God did not authorize, and for that God killed them. And no doubt the fatal judgment of God on Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who offered unauthorized incense to the Lord, was the backdrop against which the Lord gave this instruction. Tell Mo, tell, speak to your brother Aaron that he does not come into the holy place at will whenever he wishes, whenever he wants. God, it seems, was using this tragic event as a teaching moment to reinforce the truth of his holiness and the consequent need to fear him and approach him with due reverence. And here's the interesting thing. Inasmuch as Aaron was the divinely appointed high priest, the spiritual representative of the people, who alone could enter the Holy of Holies, Aaron was to understand that he could not just enter this sacred precinct whenever he willed. Why such stipulation? Because you see, this was a safety measure for Aaron. This was for the protection of his own life, to save him from being killed. Notice the last part of verse 2, the last clause of verse 2, so that he may not die was the reason God restricted him from entering the most holy place. Well, how is this explained? You see, sinful man cannot see God in the brilliance of his glory and live. That was why when Moses requested of God to show him his glory, God had to hide him behind a rock, in the cleft of a rock. And God said to him, I will hide you in this rock and I will pass by you. You will only see part of my glory, but you cannot see my glory and live because no man can see me and live. That was why back in the Old Testament when people encountered what they understood to have been a manifestation of God. They often feared becoming frantic, as it were, at the thought that they would die. This was the case, for example, with Jacob in Genesis chapter 32 and verse 20, or verse 30, rather. It was the case with Manoah in Judges 13, 21, 22, when the angel of the Lord appeared to him. He was afraid, he panicked, fearing he was going to die. Why? Because he had seen God. 
And so although he was a priest, Aaron was not allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. Why? Because the holy and glorious presence of God, represented by the cloud over the mercy seat, verse 2, rendered the holy place a hazardous place, a very dangerous and deadly place. You know, sometimes you're going into buildings, you might be going to a factory and you will see the skull and bones suggesting what danger keep out. That was the Holy of Holies. And as such, it was not to be a place, it was not a place to be trivialized. It was not a place that was to be tread in a routine, casual, commonplace fashion. And so the last sentence of verse 2, you'll notice, further explains why God issued the warning to Aaron not to come whenever he wished. Look at the reason God gave. Verse 3, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. What was God saying there? God was saying this because I will be in that place. Aaron doesn't want to come there. Why? Because he'll die. He'll be killed. The holiness of God. The sinfulness of man. On this day of atonement, Aaron had to meticulously follow certain guidelines with respect to entering that sacred precinct. He had to offer up, verse 3, a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. The sacrifice bull, according to verses 6 and 11, was to make atonement for himself and his family. Notice what God does there. He begins with the spiritual head. He begins with Aaron. And the point is, even though he is a holy man of God, even though he's a representative of the people, the high priest, he is nonetheless a sinner in need of being, of having, taken, having his sins taken care of. Aaron also had to follow instructions relating to his attire. The kind of clothes he was to wear before entering the holy place. In addition, he had to undergo a preparatory ritual bath. According to verse 4, he, he had to bathe his body in water, wash his body in water. The Bible says he had to put on clean clothing and he had to put on clothing of a particular material. According to verses 5 through 9, two male goats from the congregation, taken from the congregation of Israel, was chosen. One of two goats, one of these two goats, taken from the congregation of Israel, was chosen by Lot to be offered to the Lord as a sin offering for all the people. As we see in verse 10, the other goat was to be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it so that it might be sent away into the wilderness. Now, what I want for us to notice in the passage is this, that to further highlight the gravity, the seriousness of sin, our text portrays for us something of the pervasive, defiling nature of sin. The pervasive, defiling nature of sin. What are we talking about? This, the fact that sin is a deadly, dangerous, contaminating power that touches and affects everything. And consequently, the critical and dire need for atonement. 
And so from verses 6 through 24, notice the various entities for which atonement had to be made all on account of the pervasiveness of man's sin. The pervasive effect of sin. First of all, as we said, inasmuch as Aaron was the high priest, the spiritual representative of the people, the spiritual head of the people, the text emphatically suggests that he, like everyone else, was a sinner. Indeed, as many times, as many as seven times in this chapter, notice, references made to Aaron's having the need to offer a sin offering to make atonement for himself. You'll find the phrase repeated in verses 6, 11, 17, and 24, to make atonement for himself. And according to verse 11, this had to be done before offering the sacrificial bull for the congregation. Secondly, Aaron had to make atonement even for the holy place in the following manner. So it was not just for people, not just for himself, not just for the congregation he had to make atonement, but he had to make atonement even for the holy place itself. Somebody says, well, how do you explain that? Listen, verses 12 through 16, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire, from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. He was, as it were, doing what? Veiling the presence, the holy presence of God. God was not to be looked at in the nakedness of his holiness. Verse 14, And he shall take some of the blood of the bull, sprinkle it with his finger in the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil and do with it with blood, as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkle it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Listen, verse 16. Listen this now. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. Stop there for a moment. And the question is, why make atonement for the holy place? Look at the rest of verse 16. Verse 16 explains, because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins, and so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. What the word of God is saying here is this. Even the holy place, you see, needed cleansing. Why? Because it was affected, it was contaminated by the effects of man's sin. God is holy. You know the word of God says that God is so holy that the heavens are not clean in his sight. In fact, he says not even the angels are clean in his sight. And we know that the angels are holy beings. They serve him passionately. They, 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 they excel in wisdom. They stand in the presence of God as representatives, messengers of his. And yet, the Bible says 
And of course, we could say symbolic language, hyperbole. Not even the angels are clean in his sight. And the enormity, the gravity of man's sin is of such that it touches and defiles everything. Look at how this is played out. Romans chapter 8, the word of God says that even the creation itself was subjected to futility. What happened when man sinned? Man's sin touched the creation. Why? Because out of the earth began to grow thorns and thistles. That is why man, the farmers, they sweat. God said to Adam, in the day you work, you're going to sweat, you're going to eat because he says... In the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread. Frustration, emptiness. The whole creation is groaning, is travailing. We're talking about the decline of the environment. The Bible says it's groaning. And it's earnestly awaiting the manifestation of the sons of God. And the word of God says that even creation itself is going to be what? Redeemed. So we see something of the contaminating, defiling effects of sin. You see, through this exercise, God was teaching Aaron and all the people of Israel that before him, sin is no light matter. That sin is a spiritual contaminant which defiles and puts everything in disarray. And it is from sin that we need to be cleansed if ever we are to approach him in fellowship and in worship. By the way, that's why, you know, we say to the unsaved person, somebody says, you know, what happens if I lead a righteous life? And I mean, I just commit a few sins here and there. Here's the thing, to enter heaven, you have to be absolutely holy. To enter heaven, one must be absolutely righteous, perfectly righteous. You say, how is that possible? Here's the bad news. You and I do not have it. The good news is that we have the absolute perfect righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see how that plays out in our passage. But the reason, what, what we're talking about here, my friend, is this. The fact that God is infinitely holy, his demands for entering the kingdom of God are infinitely demanding. We must, if we are to enter his presence, be without the slightest trace of sin. Notice in verse 17, you know, that as a contaminating, defiling power, sin creates alienating distance between human beings and a holy and righteous God. The people of Israel, verse 17, were soberingly reminded, we read, no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for the house and for all the assembly of Israel. God is saying here, look, even the slightest trace of sin has to be removed. Third, you'll notice that after atonement was made for the holy place, notice what happened. Aaron then made atonement for the altar and the holy court. So watch how he's moving. He starts with the holy of holies. That's where God resided symbolically. 
And then after he finished cleansing the Holy of Holies, he goes now to where you would first enter the tabernacle, and that is the altar and the outer court, verses 18 and 19. And then notice again, verse 19, that this area... This area was cleansed, this area was consecrated, this area was atoned for from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. That's what verse 19 says. Of course, through the blood of the sacrificial bull and goat, verses 18 and 19. And then fourthly, Aaron had to make atonement for the whole congregation. He had to make atonement for himself. He had to make atonement for the Holy of Holies. He had to make atonement for the altar. He had to make atonement for the entire congregation. Verses 22 to 24, a reminder of the solemn truth that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that hence all are in need of redemption. All are in need of being saved And then fifthly, that on this day of atonement, Aaron had to make atonement for the full extent of the people's sin. So notice again the progression. He had to make atonement for all the people, and now he had to make atonement for the full extent of the people's sin. Every sin had to be atoned for. So notice the broad-ranging term, all that's used in connection with the sins of the people for which atonement had to be made. Verse 16, look at these expressions. Verse 16, what was to be taken care of on the day of atonement? All their sins. Verse 21, all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. Verse 22, all their iniquities. And so in all these atoning rituals and sacrifices for Aaron, his family, the entire congregation of Israel, as well as for the entire tabernacle, we have a grim, sobering reminder regarding the contaminating, defiling power of sin. Why do people need to be saved? People need to be saved not only from the penalty of sin. They need to be saved from the contaminating power of sin. That is why God could not simply let a person into heaven out of mere compassion, out of mere love. Why? Because even if he were to let them into heaven, there is still a problem. And that problem is the heart would be in need of cleansing. The life would have to be purified. One would have to be freed from the very power of sin. Not just the penalty, but the power of sin. And I'll tell you something. You don't have to look too hard. You and I don't have to look too hard to know that sin is a power that is defiling. Watch how easy it is to think sin and to do sin, temptations, and so on and so forth. We're reminded from the Day of Atonement that not only does sin defile human beings, but sin distances human beings from a holy and righteous God. Hence, the need for atonement with respect to sins. So we are winding down now. We're coming for a nice landing. And I've skipped out a lot. So we're coming now for the, the, the runway. The most beautiful part of this chapter that I want for us to see concerns the matter in which Aaron 
made atonement for the sins of, of, for his sins and those of the entire congregation. With one of the goats having been slaughtered, verse 15, verses 20 and 22 says this, and when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess it over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote era, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." In these symbolic acts of Aaron, beloved, we have suggested some rich theological truths. In the slain goat and the live goat, we have portrayed for us two aspects of the redeeming, atoning work of our Lord Jesus on the cross. We have two aspects of his redeeming work on the cross. And these two goats illustrate the cause and effect of his death on the cross for our sins. In the slain goat, we have a representation of the doctrine of substitutionary, substitutionary atonement, which of course concerns an innocent victim dying in the place of the guilty. In the slain goat, we have typified the truth of the gospel that with respect to the death of Christ on the cross, God, according to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, for our sake, made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you see it in the goats? Aaron confessed one of the goats was slain. That is the, that is the cause, the cause of our redemption. It was because Christ died on the cross. He paid the penalty. But what was the effect of his dying on the cross? It is in the second goat. And we are seeing in the second goat the fact that Aaron confesses sins. He laid his two hands on the head of the goat, confesses sins over the people. That's how you get the idea of substitution. That's how you get the idea of our sins being transferred to the Lord Jesus Christ, in which he became sin for us before a holy God. Even as the blood of the slain goat sprinkled on the mercy seat satisfied the holy claims of God with respect to violated, his violated law, so the shed blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, satisfied the justice and holiness of God. We have in this doctrine, in this doctrine of propitiation, the truth that Christ through his death satisfied the holy wrath of God. That's the slain lamb. In the slain lamb we have the doctrine of propitiation. Christ atoning for sin, satisfying the wrath of God, propitiating the wrath of God against us. Romans 3.25 says this, that Christ, of Christ, that God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. 1 John 2 verse 2, he is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, what aspect of Christ's redemptive work does the living goat represent? 
that live goat over which Aaron confessed all the sins of the people and sent away to a remote area in the wilderness, verses 21 and 22, speaks of the glorious assuring truth that in consequence of the atoning substitutionary death of Christ on the cross, he the one on whom all our iniquities were laid, Isaiah 53, verse 6, bore them all away, Isaiah 53 and verse 12. And don't we hear the language Used with respect to the goat, the live goat, bearing away our sins in First Peter chapter 2, verse 24, which tells us of our Lord Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The idea was this. He bore them, not only in the sense of his suffering for them, but he bore them away. Indeed, John 1, 21, John 1 verse 29, he is none other than the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And my friends, that this goat, notice, was sent far away into the wilderness, never to be seen again, speaks eloquently of him who, having forgiven us all our trespasses, Colossians 2 verse 13, removes our transgression from us as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, verse 12, who remembers our sins and our iniquities no more. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. When that goat was let go into the farthest part of the wilderness, that goat was never to be found again, never to be seen again, representing the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, when he propitiated the wrath of God, when he bore our sins in his body, he took them all away. He took them all away. What were the limitations of the Day of Atonement? As wonderful as that day was in its representation of the great truths of the gospel, what were its limitations? The entire ritual which concerned the issue of the nation's sins had to be repeated year after year after year after year. Why so? Because those sacrifices served merely to cover sins, not to clear away sins. As the writer of Hebrews declares in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, the same sacrifices that were continually offered every year could not perfect the worshipers, otherwise they would have ceased to be offered. In these sacrifices, he says, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Interestingly, the Hebrew expression Yom Kippur, people say today Yom Kippur, <laughs> um, it's Yom Kippur, and literally... It's, tra it's translated, popularly translated, Day of Atonement, but properly speaking, literally, it is the Day of Covering, because the word Kippur means to cover. It's the word that is used in Genesis, which talks about Noah covering the ark with pitch. You see, here's the point. Those sacrifices of bulls and goats on the Day of Atonement, those sacrifices that were offered year after year after year after year, they covered, they merely what? Covered sins. They never cleared away sins. 
Praise be to God, the glorious news of the gospel, beloved, is this, that our Lord Jesus came not to cover sins, but to put them away forever. Hebrews 9, 26, Hebrews 10, 10-22, because by his death, he not only atoned for our sins, but he reconciled us to God, giving us a place of acceptance before God. Interestingly, in the New Testament, you don't see the word atonement with respect to what Jesus did. For example, in the King James Version, it says, through whom we have received the atonement. But the word really is the reconciliation. And here's the point, that what Christ did on the cross, not simply atone for sin in the sense of covering it with the Old Testament understanding, but that he actually what? In the process, reconcile us to God. You see, it's one thing to have our sins taken care of, penalties removed. It's another thing to be put right with God. Indeed, whereas the day of atonement occurred once every year, Christ, according to Hebrews 9, 26, 28, here's what the writer says. He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, not by the sacrifice of bulls and goats, but by the sacrifice of himself. He says in verse 28, he was offered once to bear the sin of many, so that, praise be to God, there's no need for repetition or reenactment of his sacrifice. Why? Because the work is done. Praise God, there's no need for repetition of his sacrificial work. The price is paid. We are redeemed. What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Savior. What a wonderful Savior. Is Jesus, my Lord. Beloved, we have in the Lord Jesus a powerful, all-sufficient Savior, a Savior who himself was at once the sacrifice and the priest. We have then in him perfect, complete redemption in which we can rest, in which we can glory. The question is this morning, you're not saved, do you know him? Have you come to him, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the the Lamb of God, who gives us a place of right standing before God?